From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ, Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso, Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, I'm Angie Corio in for Brad today. This week, what is there to say about this past week? It was already bad enough that two more Americans died because of apparently senseless police violence. Not that this made it an unusual week, unfortunately, because that is what happens here. One of the hardest things to stomach about it was the continued indifference or open hostility toward our black community and their efforts to be treated as equal human beings. But now we know what it looks like when the whole country reacts appropriately, or most of us, to horribly tragic, unjustifiable violence. We found out with the shootings in Dallas on Thursday and another incident Friday near St. Louis, an officer shot in the neck during a traffic stop. The outpouring of sympathy and anger That is what is supposed to happen in the wake of violent, mindless deaths. Anyone's violent, mindless death. For whatever reason, one person after another dying over the past year, let alone the years before that, for selling cigarettes or for selling CDs or for having a busted taillight or a child killed in milliseconds for carrying a toy gun, these two cry out to be appropriately mourned, to be marked, to be an impetus for change. And you know why it's not? You know why the killings of the poor and the non-white Americans may never be able to break through to the human conscience in this country? Ladies, gentlemen, everyone, hear ye the voice of Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, speaking to, of course, Fox News. I grew up in a world, I've been around long enough that we've always had bad people, we've always had dangerous people, but the general public respected the police. Too many in the general public who aren't criminals but have a big mouth are creating situations like we saw last night. This was obviously organized weeks ago because as someone said earlier, this this rally wasn't, or this protest wasn't arranged until about this time yesterday morning. Mm -hmm. So this was going to happen at some point, these men were going to use a trigger moment. Um, All those protesters last night, they ran the other way, expecting the men and women in blue to turn around and protect them. What hypocrites. And I understand understand the First Amendment. I understand freedom of speech, and I defend it. It is in our Constitution. It is in our soul. But you can't go out on social media and mainstream media and everywhere else and say that, that, that the police are racist, that the police are hateful, the police are killers. These are people... I'm, t- I'm sick and tired of those who are, who are protesting our police and, uh, and putting their lives in danger. Where there's wrong, there's wrong, and then it has to be addressed. But uh, this has got to stop, and it needs to stop now. 
there's more. I will not inflict the whole thing on you. Your ears are not deceiving you. With five officers dead, seven people suffering gunshot wounds, this human-shaped clump of dirty cells lays the whole thing in the lap of his countrymen, daring to fight for some justice, some equality. He doesn't even name the two men who are the latest to have their names added to this endless roster, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. No, because, you see, it was the people protesting the shooting of a guy who it appears now did not reach for a gun, or the high-achieving gift to his community whose crime was being black in a stopped car. It was them and the people protesting that injustice who brought about the death of the officers in the bloody night hours. And again, your ears did not deceive you. He blamed the protesters for scattering away from flying bullets. He blamed human beings for their innate survivor instincts for trying to stay alive. Well, how dare they? If they wanted to protest the killings of their brothers and sisters, it was their job to stand there and be killed, right? And of course, you heard, in case you didn't notice, the traditional longing for the good old days, back when we all knew who the good guys and the bad guys were, when everyone respected the police. I am sure that is Dan Patrick's experience of the good old days. Now, why wouldn't it be? He is white. He is economically secure. He grew up where menly men were men, and the darkies knew their place. So how dare they start demanding to be treated as well, well, as well as he's guaranteed to be treated every day. And this man is the lieutenant governor of one of our most populous, largest states. The same man who, by the way, tweeted out, the morning a gay nightclub saw the greatest massacre in recent U.S. history, quote, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Well, God bless America, huh? He deleted that, too. By contrast, let's hear how another American approached this. Now, he shares the same skin color as the men and women who keep dying by cops, so of course he's biased. He's educated. His words are carefully parsed. By virtue of being an accomplished black man, of course, he is hopelessly biased against police and peace and the American way. I will have more to say about this as the facts become more clear. Uh, for now, let me just say that uh, even as yesterday I spoke about our need to be concerned as all Americans about racial disparities in our criminal justice system, I also said yesterday that our police have an extraordinarily difficult job, and the vast majority of them do their job in outstanding fashion. I also indicated the degree to which we need to be supportive of those officers who do their job each and every day, protecting us and protecting our communities. Today is a wrenching reminder of the sacrifices that they make for us. We also know that when people are armed with powerful weapons, unfortunately it makes attacks like these more deadly and more tragic. In case you doubt 
this is all our president's fault. Remember Joe Walsh, the hate-blinded racist who felt it appropriate to shatter any illusion of respect for the office of the president by shouting, you lie, in the middle of a State of the Union address? He was busy deleting tweets in the wake of the shootings, too. Or was he? Some pretty ugly remarks about, quote, uneducated black thugs are still standing, at least as of the time of this recording. But Joe Walsh, former congressman, current radio hate monger, or someone, pulled the worst of the zingers. It said, quote, this is now war. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Black Lives Matter punks. Real America is coming after you. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Obama. Now, mind you, Joe Walsh said this was not a threat to the president. Holding a pitchfork in one hand, a flaming torch in the other, and signaling his listeners toward the gallows, he insisted that this was innocent commentary. Now, why is that tweet gone? Joe Walsh told the Chicago Tribune he didn't pull it. He says Twitter... And, of course, he took the extra moment to point out how poisonously liberal Twitter and Facebook and all of them are, temporarily suspended his account until he agreed to delete it. The tweet is gone. His putrid soul lingers on. Here's the deal. What Joe Walsh did was not merely offensive. It is arguably actionable on the part of the Secret Service. When social media participants pointed out that threatening the president is illegal and should be looked into. Others chimed in that, eh, it's just an e-felony. But an e-felony is not a small deal. Per Wikipedia, which in turn cites reliable sources, the offense is punishable by up to five years in prison. A $250,000 maximum fine, a $100 special assessment, and three years of supervised release. Internet restrictions such as a prohibition on access to email have been opposed on offenders who made their threats by computer. Joe Walsh, locked up for five years, $250,000 poorer, without a computer. I could see that. I could get behind that. Now, I will fight to the death for him to keep his microphone, his free speech. That is until someone starts shooting, in which case, please excuse my ducking. That's what bad liberals do under fire, you know. All right, I've vented. Stay with me for a more positive, forward-looking take on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. It's been a long, a 
but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Desi today. There's no reason to short-circuit the mourning and the processing of multiple deaths this week in the battle for human rights. All those deaths without reason, all without justification. At some point, though, we do need to pick a direction forward. I found an organization that's working very concretely to bring the best of city police forces together with the citizens they have vowed to protect to form real bonds, real connections, so that to serve and protect is more than a slogan. The Advancement Project works to positively promote and advocate for racial, social, and justice equality for everyone who is othered in American culture. I talked to their founder, Connie Rice, and I was just blown away by the tales she has to tell that came out of their efforts to build community policing. And you've got to hear this. She is a lifelong activist. She was named to President Obama's task force on 21st century policing, and that resource guideline just came out in October. So here's our conversation. Connie Rice, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Just in the polarized reactions to the shootings, that to me was just an indicator of how far apart the interested parties are here, that you wonder how to start moving beyond that. So can we get some feedback from you on that? I would like to say that I think everybody should be grieving for both the families of the slain officers, as well as the families of the shooting victims that got caught on these awful cell phone videos that we've seen about 15 of now. And I think what you're seeing is a point, a boiling point, and perhaps a point of no return, and you don't want to get there. We're not there yet, but you don't want to get to a point where you have people feeling more like the shooter in Dallas yesterday, that there is no recourse We're going to keep seeing shooting, unjustifiable shootings, and no one is going to do anything about it. And so these people start to get panicky and they start to do irrational things like violence. We need to get away from that. People need to understand something that's very clear. There is a solution. There's a very clear set of solutions to this problem of a complete breakdown of trust between poor communities and police. And it, it's going to take a lot of effort, but it can be done. And it hasn't been done. Yes, it has been done. It's been done in L.A. with one unit of the LAPD. I can, I can testify to that because I co-created the unit and changed all the incentives, changed the promotional, promotional criteria, changed the training criteria. And what we have now is a specialized partnership force. We call it the Community Safety Partnership. And these are cops who agree to undergo a completely different kind of training. They are not promoted, for example, on the basis of arrest. They are promoted on the basis of how much trust they have generated with the local community in the housing projects, because it's four housing projects that these cops operate in. And the CSP cops, they only get promoted if they can demonstrate how they avoided arresting a kid. So we've turned the incentives like that and completely turned them upside down. So that what we're getting is we're getting people who see themselves as guardians and who see themselves as partners and part of the community, as opposed to soldier warriors who swoop into the community, arrest as many people as they can, destroy families, 
uh, and then and then extract people in mass incarceration, and they leave. And they don't know anybody's name. They don't care about anybody. They don't even care about the destruction they've done. And the community hates them. There are so many things to parse through there. So let me let me grab a couple of those. One is, I commend your reference to poorer communities because that puts a different picture on what we're talking about as opposed to race division. And and we know that oftentimes racism and classism do go hand in hand. And either way, there's there's an othering here, treating people as different and lower than yourselves. The other thing I well, noticed... Well, I guess poverty is it's the poor communities and the high crime communities that you're going to see this kind of policing and this kind of breakdown in the relationship between the community and the police. There's going to be zero trust. Because what we've done is we've unleashed the police as this destructive, rototilling force that destroys families, has mass incarceration, leaves the community unhealed. The kind of policing that I'm talking about, the cops don't see themselves as warriors. They do not see themselves as arrest machines. (laughs) They see themselves as healers. They see themselves as people who are going to make the community healthier and fight crime by creating a healthier community. And they bond with the local residents of the housing projects. They know every kid's name. They stay for five years. That's a huge thing. Most mm. cops stay a year. They stay for five years in those housing projects. They know every kid's name. They know all the principals and the teachers. They become part of that community. And, you know, they're, they're doing barbecues at night for the kids. And, you know, they, they really make themselves a productive uh, value-added part of the community. In other words, these are cops who are earning trust through service. Mm-hmm. And I call trust policing, I call it problem-solving policing. Chief Beck calls it re- relationship-based policing. And uh, Ms., uh, President Obama's task force calls it guardianship policing. But it's all a, a, a stronger version of community policing. And it's 180 degrees away from warrior occupation-style militarized mass arrest policing. Kip, that just sounds like such a sane and immediately acceptable idea. So where do you find resistance? What shape does that take, and why is it out there? Oh, the resistance is enormous, because you're threatening the identity of a cop. If you're a cop who thinks of himself as a Rambo soldier, and I come in and tell him, no, you're going to learn to love these poor kids and help them through school, they're like... I've had a male cop tell me, that's women's policing, this right. Wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Or I've had them say, you know, I'm not a social worker. I'm a cop. And Chief Bratton uh, was with me when a cop said that to me. And Chief Bratton said, well, if you're not not willing to do social work, I want your badge and I want your gun because you have no business being a cop. Being a cop means that you become part of the community, you help the community heal, and if that requires social work, then you have social work. But that was Chief Bratton, you know, mm. America's top cop. <laughs> <laughs> right, and right. Beck and I, Chief Charlie Beck and I, created this community safety partnership unit with a completely different vision. We said, we need to create guardians. How do you take military soldier cops, warrior cops, and turn them into guardians who love the kids in the housing projects? They don't fear these kids because they know who they are. Mm-hmm. They've cooked hot dogs and hamburgers for them in the summer. You know, they, they've taught them how to swim. They've brought bifocals for their grandparents. You know, I mean, these are cops who are earning trust through service. 
And President Obama and the task force have rightly said the mission is how you create, how do you replace hatred and warfare between the community and, and, and the cops with trust? Mm-hmm. And you can see that there are a couple of vested interests here that for whom this would not be a positive. I mean, there are armament industries, there are privatized prison industries. They stand to lose if this kind of thing catches on. You do have fewer people in prison uh, because the cops are focused on reducing recidivism. used to be that their job was to pick up as many people as they could and violate them on their probation so that they could go back to prison because the prison guards get more money if the prisoners return. These cops are going against those incentives. They're going against those systems. No more, they don't want to rest. They want to demonstrate how they kept a kid out of prison. Well, who's that good for? It's just good for the kid. <laughs> right. Well, it's harder you know? to tally up, too. It's, I mean, an arrest is a hash mark. Boom, I had an arrest. It's harder to say I've had a positive impact on the community. These cops, who are some of the best cops in LAPD because they're paid more, they're made into a specialized unit that's a pet project of the chief. Chief Beck and I chose the different participants, you know, the people. There are about 700 cops who applied for 50 positions. So we have some of the best cops. They are, of course, disproportionately female, and they are disproportionately of color, and they're just some of the best cops LAPD has, uh, and others are converts. They used to be warrior cops, and now they're like, I want to do something different. One cop said to me, you know what? If you destroy the community, you destroy yourself. I want to give back after destroying so many lives, and it began with an apology. It began with a mutual apology. LAPD officers led by Mata Tengaridis went to the Watts Gang Task Force and they said, we know we've been a destructive force. We want to apologize for that and we want to start over. And, you know, with that apology, the community members stood up and, you know, went over the injuries that LAPD had caused their families. LAPD acknowledged them and apologized for all of them. And, and then the community worked its way around to apologizing to LAPD. So it was, it started with an apology. It started with an acknowledgement of the damage, and that's how you start it. I'm talking right now with Connie Rice. She's a national expert on community-based policing, and you can find the Advancement Project online, advancementprojectca.org. Connie, I want to ask you about the precariousness of an organization taking what can be perceived as a political stand. I've been following the Twitter feed of the Advancement Project. I have found nothing to disagree with there, but we're in such polarized times that just by saying, what is happening out there on the streets is wrong, and we all have a part, and it can be seen as a politicized message as opposed to common sense. And I, I wonder what experience you have in kind of treading that fine line of keeping an objectivity when almost nothing is perceived as objective anymore. Well, I don't pay any attention to those folks because they don't know what they're talking about. I pay attention to people who know what they're talking about. Bottom line is that we have the data. We can show you the drop in crime. We can show you the surveys of the public housing project uh, residents who tell you that these cops have earned their trust. We can show you the roles that they've played. You know, we can show you that there's a healthier community. For example, the first three years of this program, Jordan Downs House Project, which used to have to do a body count every week in that housing project during the crack wars. In the first three years of this program, there were zero shootings. Zero wow. murders. That's like that's like saying 
there were in a brothel there were zero sex acts for years. <laughs> you know? Yes. Unheard of. We we didn't believe the data. I said, No, that can't be right. Go check the data. You must have done something wrong. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I look at facts, I look at data. I look at the interviews and the surveys, and I and then I go down to the housing projects and I see how people are now sitting out on their porches, and Latino members of the community are feeling emboldened enough to sit out. And the, I mean, you know, you just see these differences. And when somebody says oh, this is political, I said, "So be it. I don't really care." <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you, you have just you you've raised my soul today. You just what a joy to talk to you, and it's it's been such a horrible horrible week. And I'm glad to talk to someone who not only wants to do positive things, but the Advancement Project is out there actually doing the footwork. And I, I thank you for that, and I thank you for your time. Oh, appreciate it. Connie Rice's organization is the Advancement Project at advancementprojectca.org. I'm Angie Coro, in for Brad and Desi today, back with more on the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. What's the recipe for freedom? See, the jig is up. I know I'm supposed to celebrate with the rest of y'all, but I've had enough. Neighborhood watch captain in Florida. And 12-year-old Tamir Rice. A man named Eric Garner. George Sandra Bland's phone call from jail. Two officers confronted 37-year-old Alton Sterling. I'll wave my hands, but with a spiteful chant. How am I supposed to shake the fact that my people never had a fighting chance? Still speaking poetic justice, because maybe it will flow better. Or maybe I should shut my mouth, King Kunta, you should know better. Flowing with the wind of life, yeah, that's some cold weather. But we turn nightmares into street dreams, and with these street dreams, we raced up these kings and these queens, and with these teams, these words we learn to sing. We shall overcome, we shall overcome. And the strong continued. So let these fireworks ignite your soul. Oh, but you got to know when it comes to being free, we got work to do. A nation built on slave labor, looking at these holidays with a narrow view, I'm through. Cops getting trigger happy everywhere we go. Kids yelling Black Lives Matters while families are being knocked down like dominoes. Hide your wife, hide your kids. Yeah, that's a reality. As the media shows us another man dying in the hands of police brutality. Is this a throwback joint from the 60s? Better yet the 50s, though time has passed by swiftly. Equality isn't shifting. I guess I don't get it. Somebody help me piece this together. But until black lives matters to all lives, this right here is going to go on forever. So explain to me, what's the recipe for freedom? Freedom. Staring right at 2018 As if mankind's atrocities for man has no history Brad and Desi are out. I'm Angie Quero sitting in on the broadcast. You might think 
All right, well, I would think, since I am chronically politically cynical, that nothing could have booted the Hillary Clinton email scandal out of the headlines. Tragically, we have found out that is not the truth, haven't we? But when the FBI report came out, the GOP, gosh, you better be sitting down for this one, was immediately irate that justice would not be done. And they dragged Director Comey to a hearing to discover how he would dare not recommend indictment. Let me lay out my own terrain here. I don't buy that Hillary Clinton is evil incarnate. I don't buy that she masterminded the death of Vince Foster. I don't buy that she's part of some intricate underground plot to rule the world. I will vote for Hillary Clinton. But she is not nearly liberal enough for me. If we could combine her efficacy politically with Bernie Sanders' principles, as far as I'm concerned, we would have an excellent candidate. But we don't. So I will vote for Hillary. I know New York Democratic State Committee woman Deborah Cooper is a much bigger Clinton fan, and I wanted to get her take on the report and on the hearings. Here's our chat. I, I know that we all expected that the FBI report would come out and all the interested parties would stand down and say, OK, that's over. Let's move forward. And I was shocked, shocked that that is not what happened. <laughs> I just I first want to get your input to the initial reaction that you heard to the report. Well, I was surprised at the I was actually surprised that the FBI director Comey gave an interview um, of 15 minutes in which he spent 14 minutes castigating her uh, for carelessness, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, he said, well, but we're not going to indict. And I think people need to remember that James Comey is a Republican. Mm-hmm. And I never understand why Democrats keep appointing Republicans to police positions and things like the Defense Department. And if you remember, every single independent prosecutor was a Republican. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know why we keep doing that, because people are partisan and I'm partisan. And I know that it colors the way I look at the world. And um, I thought it was really inappropriate for him to say all the things he said, some of which I think he was mistaken of, some of which were assumptions built upon no evidence whatsoever. The evidence that her server was hacked, there's no evidence, but he thinks it could be. So because it came out of his mouth, it somehow is more credible. Let me play devil's advocate here just a little bit. Uh, When I was watching him in the hearing that, of course, was immediately called, I saw a guy who was hewing very closely to the line of, my report goes here and no further. I can't say what was in her mind. I can't say what her intent was. Here are the facts as presented to us, and here's what our conclusions are. And those conclusions essentially say, there's nothing to move on here. Right, right. I thought he was much more credible and careful in the hearings Mm -hmm. than he was in his press conference. I thought... uh, he was because I think he realized the import of his words uh, were going to be used to um, tar and feather her. And I actually, you know, personally, um, I will say that I'm coming from the perspective of having known her for 25 years. I don't think she was careless. I think she was very much trying to do her job with the incredibly antiquated tech system that the entire government has, where thousands of people are either forced to use personal email, whether it's Gmail or a personal server, or not actually accomplish what they're there to accomplish, because 
the actual systems are so kludgy and so outdated and so inflexible. And the rules are inflexible. So it makes it very hard to do her do your job. And I think she's a, a person who actually is very committed to getting work done. That's one of the major criteria that she judges herself on. And I think that was one of her motivations was just, how can I be more efficient? How can I make sure that I can function? And mm. so that was part of it. And I, she is not a liar. The woman is, I've, she is, um, she is pretty, I found her mind pretty easy to read all these years. And, you know, if she wanted to lie, she mm. could have lied about her stance on the Iraq war and won the presidency eight years ago. But she refuses to say things she doesn't believe. And so to some people that sounds like hedging, but she's actually trying to figure out whether something is doable or not, because she's very interested in making sure that things actually happen and that they work. Mm -hmm. So I I thought um, the idea that everyone's saying she's lying was just absolutely outrageous. And then afterward, the State Department came out showing that most of the emails that he said contained classified information either were not classified because they were mistakenly classified, or they were not classified in their headers. And the other thing is, you and I know that there are email threads in which there could be hundreds of emails, and you don't read every email in an email thread. So you have no way of knowing what other materials might be in that email. You're just responding to the one you got. Talking to Deborah Cooper right now about the FBI Clinton investigation and the subsequent statements, subsequent hearings. And at points, I thought Clinton was notably disingenuous. It, it, she, she was asked about wiping the server, and she said, well, with a cloth or something. I can't oh, believe a woman in her position. A, oh, that was a joke. I mean, I've known her long enough to know her sense of humor, which is actually not all that sophisticated. But <laughs> But she did. She that went on to say, so, "Anybody who knew her could tell by the little twinge of a smile and their eyes winking up at the time that she was making a joke." Well, understood. But and, she followed up by saying, yeah. "I don't know how it works digitally at all." And Comey yeah, said well, that her lawyer. I, I don't know a single government official who has been in government for very long at all who knows how to work almost any single device you could possibly want. I have. Um, friends who are assemblymen who have no, you know, maybe they can do email, but that's it. And they have no idea how to do anything else on a computer. They have, it's a foreign object to them. Mm -hmm. And people who have been in office since before email and before computers are absolutely antediluvian in their understanding of how those things would work. So I find that totally credible. I mean, I must know 50 office holders who are her age who wouldn't have the vaguest idea how to do any of those things. I mean, I think she was just thrilled to figure out she could work a BlackBerry. <laughs> well, let's talk about consequences. One of the things, that, okay. I should tell you, I come from a mixed household. I, you know, I am a liberal and my sweetheart is a conservative, so we have, we right. have this, this right. Mary Madeline thing going on here. But one of the things that he explained to me, and he works in a high security clearance position, Right. And he said that a lesser employee in one of the companies he's associated with accidentally traveled with a USB full of information that should not have been moved physically from place to place. Right. The man right. kept his job, but he lost his security clearance because he had demonstrated that accidentally or not, he could not be trusted with this access to important information. And some of the cry that we're hearing now is, 
and in fact, a lawsuit to say she has to lose her security clearance. So I, I wonder about her playing the I'm naive about digital card on the one hand, which may in fact be true, and the right. you have to suffer the consequences for your actions on the other hand. But I don't think she was careless with either. She was neither careless nor willfully negligent. So I and I think the the evidence of her carelessness that James Comey put forward was just doesn't hold water. And I think, you know, well, you know, she's going to be the president of the United States. It's pretty hard to keep secrets away from her. She couldn't possibly do her job. And so it's a really silly thing to be saying. I mean, it's really fundamentally silly. It's like saying, be president, but you, you're you not a commander in chief. Be president, but you are you can't send the budget to Congress. I mean, really, it's just silly. But isn't that cart before the horse? Isn't that saying that if she can't be trusted to not have accidents with these but materials, she can, then be, she can be trusted. I, I just categorically reject the idea that she is an untrustworthy person. She is just so committed to the work she does. She is so hardworking. I mean, you know, I know her well enough to know people who know her who told me that it'd be one in the morning and they may be playing hearts with Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton is sitting at her desk reading her briefing papers. I mean, she is just such a committed worker and I'm so committed to doing what she's doing that I just find it totally ridiculous. And if there was something in an email chain, I mean, so who sent the original email? Is James Comey going to go after that person? How many Thousands of people make mistakes that, you know, it's, it's the, actually the quantity and the quality of the mistake. Mm-hmm. And the three emails that he brought up were things that the State Department said were basically her schedule. Mm-hmm. And it's classified before they give it to her, and then it's unclassified after they give it to her. So she was, it was her schedule. I mean, that's hers. Right. So it, it, I don't find any of this holding water. It's just all based on 25 years of slamming Hillary Clinton because she was the first truly feminist, committed activist first lady. And I, I don't know how old you are, Angie, but I'm, I'm her age, actually. Mm-hmm. And I'm so only slightly know, younger. Only slightly younger. Okay. So I remember what it was like when she said, you know, I wanted to do my job and not bake cookies. Oh, um, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, and that considered the most horrifying thing a woman could say. Mm-hmm. And it's 25 years of people, um, you know, just, they you throw so much at her, they think they must, that, that right-wing propaganda becomes common wisdom, common knowledge. And she's not like that. I, I cannot tell you, um, she's just, a, you know, she has a wonderful mind, but she also has a very big heart. Mm-hmm. And she really is a very... She's really committed in small ways and in big ways in making people's lives better. So I, I don't find it credible. I mean, if Donald Trump should not be trusted with security briefings because he has absolutely no judgment. Lordy, I can't imagine anyone would argue that. <laughs> We're not, that's, that's, that's as obvious as the sun coming up, so I'm not right. going to waste radio and, time going there. Can I make a personal complaint about Donald Trump that he is a horrible grandfather? Anybody who can say that all he can talk about is grandchildren for a minute, a minute? He can talk about his grandchildren for a minute? What kind of man says <laughs> talk about his grandchildren for a minute? Do you know any grandparents who can only go on for a minute? I mean, what awful person? 
<laughs> now, how do you how do you know he's not protectively and intelligently keeping his grandkids out of the spotlight? Come on now, Deborah. Oh, I'm sure he is. But his <laughs> statement was, "How can Bill Clinton talk about his grandchildren for 20 minutes?" Well, if yeah. you've ever talked to Bill Clinton, he can talk about anything for 20 minutes. But certainly, he could talk about his grandchildren for 20 minutes. And I can talk about my grandchildren for at least 20 minutes. Would you like to see pictures? Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have a, a video connection, or I'd be putting this out right. to everyone. <laughs> Did I tell you that my oldest grandson, who just turned five yesterday, said that when he saw his table mat of President of the United States, he looked at it and said, they're all men. We should have a woman. Now that, you know, now that's a grandson. Right? Oh, my God. I love that child already. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how long have I gone on? I'm sure it's at least a minute and a half, two minutes. And that's just about one of them. We'll run you for president next, Deborah. Let me ask you one question before I let you go. And that is, there's okay. no way that in the run up to the election, we're going to persuade a lot of hard line right-wing Republicans and conservatives to take a clean look at Hillary Clinton. But my concern no. lies with the Bernie supporters who are pulling the never Hillary thing. And first of all, I know you're not a pollster, but I'd like to ask you if you find their numbers alarming. And if you do, if you do think they form a significant part of the electorate, do we have a hope of persuading them? And how do we do that? I am concerned. I've always been concerned. You know, I'm actually very progressive myself. When I ran for office, I was at the very first demonstration in New York City for the Fight for 15. And on my website in 2012, I had uh, a thing about expanding and increasing Social Security. So these are things that I actually really care about. Mm -hmm. And I do think that a significant number of those Bernie supporters can be persuaded if indeed she endorses a lot of progressive policies. And I will say that I actually think that a lot of them she is very happy to do. You know, she grew up as a as a 60s progressive, as a 60s liberal. Um, and she sort of penned herself in when she went to Arkansas. And it was a much more conservative state. And Bill Clinton became president in a much more conservative era. And I think what is happening with, you know, Elizabeth Warren and the years of progressive movement building and grassroots building, because so the Fight for 15 came from grassroots organizations. Mm -hmm. That is giving her a runway in which to actually be the kind of progressive she wants to be. She just never thought it was politically possible before. I think that she would be happy if she thought that they, she had the possibility to do these things. It was always that she always wanted to accomplish something rather than nothing. And so I think she would be, she is happy, I think, to be given the opportunity and the political um, throwaway to be able to do a lot of progressive things. And I think that that will bring a lot of um, the big Bernie supporters over to her. I think, um, I think that, uh, I think if you're talking about character, there's just no way to compare her to Donald Trump. Well, what, yeah, I mean... Yeah, if you're talking about character, you can you can start by trying to find somebody who has any. That would not be Donald Trump. Yeah, so I, I, I do think, you know, I, I understand that Bernie's supposed to endorse her next Tuesday. And I think that people should be given the opportunity to be uh, happy about what he's done and what he's accomplished. And I think he's accomplished a lot. You know, I think the progressive movement 
uh, with Elizabeth Warren has accomplished a lot. I think grassroots organizations have done a lot. And I think that she would be, you know, she welcomes the possibility of making life better. And I think she thinks that progressive solutions do that. So I actually, I think that she can be persuaded. I think she can be uh, pushed and pulled. But I also think that she is, it's almost like, you know, she's got roller skates on and she's she's undoing the hook so she can go. I hope you're right. I, tr- I trust her less than you do, but I, I respect your opinion. I'm really glad you had time for us. Thanks, Deborah. All right. Thank you. That is Deborah Cooper of New York, where she is Democratic New York State Committee woman. So amongst those looking ahead at the election, we have the Deborah Coopers, who wholeheartedly support Hillary Clinton. We have my mid-range point of view. I am not thrilled at the entirety of what Clinton has to offer, but neither do I find her reprehensible or unusually corrupt as a politician. Now, mind you, I know women are regularly and fervently condemned for doing what men in the same position do all the time. Then there are the disenchanted Bernie supporters who do see her as a walking, talking manifestation of everything that's wrong in Washington. The vitriol they hurl at her is just about indistinguishable from that coming from Trump supporters or those who find Trump too liberal. I'd like to play some small part in reminding liberals inclined to sit this one out just how bad the alternative is. A few months ago, I sat down with two historians keenly aware of world history, and I asked them just how accurate one of the most inflammatory claims of this election is, that Donald Trump is way too close to Adolf Hitler. Edith Schaeffer and Charles Postel took this question from the audience. Our guest wants to know, is it really speculation to assume that Trump will carry out his stated intentions, which would match or exceed Hitler's war crimes? Two levels to that. Do his supporters really believe that he can and will do what he says? And are the people who are paralleling him to Hitler, do they really anticipate that war crimes or such terror would result? Right. And I think this comes back to how are we using this analogy? Are we using it as a prophecy or are we using it as a way to understand what's happening? Um, I hear a lot of people say, oh, Trump doesn't even really believe what he himself is saying because in the past he's held other more open-minded positions, whereas Hitler really was exterminationist from the start, right, with Mein Kampf. And so I, I think comparing them as men and with intentionality is is very different. America is also not Weimar Germany. We have over 200 years of democracy. We have deep political institutions. We have bureaucracy. Weimar Germany lasted 13 years and was always incredibly fragile. At the beginning of the Weimar period in 1919, three quarters of Germans were voting for democratic parties. Three quarters of Germans supported democracy. By 1932, when the Nazis reached 37%, that's as high as they ever got, by the way, they had a ceiling at 37%. By 1932, two-thirds of Germans were voting for anti-democratic parties. Two-thirds of Germans wanted to overthrow the republic. That's not happening in in America. So in terms of a prophecy, um, I can see slippage in these racial policies. I can see the coarsening of the discourse. Um, I also feel the, uh, quote-unquote, establishment. I've come to really hate that word. <laughs> but um, I think the establishment is reacting in an appropriate way. They are drawing a line in the sand, you know, saying this won't happen, whereas the um, establishment in the Weimar period really did think they could manage and contain and go along with Hitler. 
That's Edith Sheffer. Her recent book is Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. She's currently working on a project inventing autism under Nazism, and we'll be talking about that with her, I'm sure, when that project is at its completion. Charles Postel is with us, too, assistant professor of history at San Francisco State University. He is a specialist in political thought and social movements. I'm going to give this one to either of you to tackle because it's an important parallel. Trump has had a real estate empire, towers in New York, TV stardom, and now is a candidate. What did Hitler have before the Nazi party, besides being a failed painter? <laughs> but let's talk about this transformation from, you know, a reality star to a candidate to, you know, whatever Hitler started with. That's probably best in your area. Sure. I mean, the, the conventional story, he was pretty much of a loser, right? He was a failed art student. Um, you know, he fought in World War One. He suffered injuries. He was disaffected. His early career in politics was made in Munich, and he was a go-between between a number of folkish, this extreme right-wing nationalist um, movements. And so his job, there were about 40 of them in Munich, and how he made a name for himself was funneling mo- money secretly into these paramilitary groups, into these folkish movements. And he basically used this position to establish a large, large network for himself. So he very early went into politics and joined this this milieu in, in Munich. So no, he was not building apartment buildings in a grand business. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he was always very immersed in, in politics after the war. Charles? I think that this goes back also to the question of Trump's rhetoric versus the reality. Trump uses a rhetoric of, of violence and intimidation, which I find terrifying. And in that, that, that a presidential candidate of that, at where he is now in the Republican Party, uses that type of rhetoric and even encouraging his his supporters to beat up people and things of this nature. Hitler had a political movement that had stormtroopers. He had a major political, uh, well, not a major, it was a relatively small political party originally, but it had thugs in the street, militias organized that were wreaking, beating up Jews, beating up socialists, beating up left-wing opponents beating up whoever they wanted to beat up to intimidate them. Uh, and that was his Hitler's world in the years before he, he pushes to power. So I think that's an important difference, that uh, one is rhetoric and one is Hitler actually had these things to enforce intimidation. I want to also take to you, Charles, that one of our audience says for years, many lower income white people have been voting against their own economic self-interest by voting for Republicans. It goes all the way back to Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas and really hasn't changed a lot. How come this faction of Trump supporters don't realize pro-business politicians aren't going to make their lives better if, if you accept that premise? I accept a piece of the premise. I and mean, we have to keep in mind the Trump phenomenon there, there's a Trump ceiling to voting. It's around, it's around 38 or 40 percent, perhaps. It's around Hitler's. <laughs> uh, but that's actually wrong because that's not a national vote. That's within the Republican Party. He's at, th- he's at 38 within among Republican voters. What that means in the general vote, we don't have a measure, but we're talking about a relatively small section of Americans supporting Trump. Uh, and that's important to keep in mind. And then when you look at that small section, it's a very diverse group. The only thing that's not diverse about them is their skin color. It's white people. You know, it's, it's mainly white people. But so I, I, I think it would be wrong to say the, the white working class is supporting Trump. I think that would be a great mistake. 
uh, a piece of it is. Some mm. of them are. My own personal opinion is that Trump is relatively adept at appealing to people who are upset with the trade deals and upset with some of the economic agreements that have been going on. His basic appeal, though, is race. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, I find it very difficult to believe that, that he puts deporting the Mexicans and building the wall at the center of every single campaign speech. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a reason for that. That is the, the basis of the appeal. So people are voting for him on that basis. And it's, you could say it's against their own interests, but that's not new. It's not new that this would happen. This has been going on for a long time. And it's just take, it's taken this surprising turn. One thing that goes a little afield of the Hitler comparison, which is the basis of this hour, but there are certain interesting undercurrents in the Trump campaign about gender roles and how, how women are treated. We've seen accusations come out against his, his primary campaign manager, you know, grabbing a, a, a woman reporter by the arm and leaving a bruise, and apparently now accusations with some documentation of drunk dialing and coming on to women reporters. And uh, Trump himself answered a question from a woman reporter the other day and said, I hope I answered your question. Beautiful. And, you know, she, she went public with that one. And I wonder, and I'll let either of you take this one, if there's an appeal to the gender messaging underneath the Trump campaign, if there's some faction of Americans that respond positively to that. Um, I'd like to add to your list of <laughs> his treatment of women that is a little more sinister than calling someone beautiful is his treatment of Megyn Kelly. Mm. Right. Um, talking about her menstruation. He made a comment of about Hillary Clinton, who took a bathroom break right during the debate and she was doing whatever. There's a weird sexualization in his characterizations that you'd referred to the, the tweets before. It might appeal to some of his supporters, but again, I, I don't think we can really characterize his supporters. I, and I don't think that would necessarily, again, appeal to all of them. And I don't think it's a calculation on his part, I think you know, this is just part of, of who he is. What about Trump encouraging his followers to beat up protesters? Some of that has been really ugly. It's very disturbing. It's extremely disturbing. And, um, you know, political violence is something Charles had brought up. Um, it was absolutely essential to the political campaigning style, not only of the Nazis, but of Every political group in Weimar, Germany, had its own paramilitary. And in fact, a lot of this violence was staged. There would be communist paramilitary groups planted within Hitler's campaign rallies and order. I mean, it was very much um, dra a dramatization, as, as we've been beginning to see at Trump's in rallies. And you see him encouraging it. He loves it. He's called it, and isn't this great entertainment? And then we were just talking here during the break about his comments about the convention. There might be riots if this is taken away from him and how that might even be prophesying violence in the future. And I, I definitely see parallels with the climate of political violence that then escalated in Weimar Germany and how ironically this fed to Hitler's image as law and order and how ironically these protests are feeding into a Trump image of law and order, the strong man. It's an interesting time to start moving in the direction of solutions, and that is talking specifically about the violence at the rallies. What did we learn from Weimar Germany and the rise of Hitler, where at least we might be able to call attention to this one facet and at least get people to agree that, you know, punching protesters in the head from the side is not appropriate, saying afterward that maybe we should have killed him is not appropriate. How does one do that with the pitch of today's rhetoric today? Exactly. I think... Um 
You know, Trump has yielded somewhat on that. I think we saw within the last week he did denounce some of the violence. And so I, I would hope that continuing to put up the political pressure on him himself. But I think, you know, continued media coverage of it is really the, the only thing we can do. We have a free press. We have people who are drawing lines in the sand. And I think those are our best weapons against it. Charles? I, I agree with that. I think there's a deeper problem, though, and that is that within the culture of the Republican Party over the last 30 years, and it's intensified, there's this notion that every opponent is a traitor, someone trying to destroy the country. And if you really believe that a supporter of Barack Obama is an enemy of the United States who's trying to hand the country over to the Muslims, why shouldn't you beat them up? Mm -hmm. You should beat them up. And I, so I think that there's a wider problem of dealing with what is going on in conservative politics. Uh, these, we, and you have these horrified conservatives, oh, this violent language, aghast, aghast. But these people have been fueling the same notion that the president of the United States is a hidden Muslim trying to destroy our country for the last seven and a half years. Uh, and so the politics that the, your political opponent is actually an unpatriotic traitor to your country who's trying to destroy us all, that is the source of this. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on here. You know, and back to the Hitler analogy, of course, Hitler was beating up the, the Jews and the communists who were betraying Germany, uh, who were the traitors who resulted in Germany's defeat in World War I and were the, you know, the traitors to the German nation. I think we have to deal with the type of politics that's given rise to this violent language. You can't just say, oh, Trump, behave yourself. We have to deal with this politics uh, in a broader way. And that's a wrap on the broadcast for today. Brad Friedman and Desi will be back. They have not deserted you. My thanks to them for letting me keep the chair warm once again and the microphone hot, I hope. I'm Angie Cuero. to AM 950 KTNF, St. Louis Park, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the progressive voice of Minnesota.